I'm going to start with chapter 20. Pamphlet as only starts with chapter 20, taken from his memoir. This is Sam Darcy writing from Moscow. It seems incredible that over the last 10 years have already passed since the Moscow trials happened. How few of us understood at that time what it was about. They were the first act in a democratic country for tightening up the national unity to prepare to meet the accumulating strength of the upcoming Nazi monster, which was hurled at the democratic world. Suppose today Moscow announced that they had caught a number of traitors who conspired with the Nazis themselves, and we shot them. We would share lustily. Would we examine each detail of evidence, haunted with doubt and skepticism, and question whether the guilty were indeed guilty? We would not. That's if it happened now, because the Nazis did invade. But the author is saying, 10 years before that, there was skepticism in the, in the trials. In the same way of thinking, we did just the opposite over 10 years ago, when the young Soviet government did, in fact, arrest a number of pro-Nazi conspirators. Only then we denounced the Soviet government without bothering to examine even a single iota of the evidence. We assumed automatically that they were guilty, the Soviet government. Our country, means the United States, was filled with shouts of, quote, fake, confession was forced by torture, etc., etc. And don't forget that the people that were leading this were the Trotskyites in this country, the people who broke away in 1928 and formed the Socialist Workers' Party under James Cannon, who had been in the Politburo of the party. He went with Trotsky in 28. It is good that the change in our attitude in our country towards the Soviet Union took place 10 years in the future. It has brought good to the Soviet Union, but above all, it has brought good to ourselves and to the future of the world. To most Americans at the time, the trials were far away, remote affairs. To a few of us, they carried a deep sense of personal shock. The Zinoviev Kamenev trial occurred in January 1935. Zinoviev and Kamenev and the group around them had been in opposition to the Soviet government ever since 1927. They had, on previous occasions, been tried for shady activities and found guilty. Only then, the circumstances were less strained, and their punishment consisted of sending them to some more remote part of the country, where they could not ply their factional disruption with the same effectiveness as they could when they were at the center of things in Moscow. When Sergei Kirov, one of Stalin's brightest lieutenants, was murdered in Chicago gangster fashion in December of 1934, we knew that the opposition had connived an act that was bound to boomerang against them with a powerful blast. And so when the Zinoviev-Kamenev trial occurred in January of 1935, and they were convicted and sentenced to 10 and 5 years imprisonment for their complicity, there was a sense of shook, uh, I think it means shock, 
but right. that they should have gone so far, but the element of surprise was not there since we were already prepared by their many years of guilt and repentance and forgiveness and then repeated commission of culpable acts and repentance and forgiveness. Of that first group that went to trial in January 1935, I only knew Kamenev. The rest I knew by their writings and their work. But Kamenev's sister had, in 1927-28, to 28, lived in the room next door to us at the Lux Hotel, and Kamenev frequently visited her. He was a plumpish, medium-sized, solemn-looking man who wore glasses and could have been taken for a neighborhood doctor. At the time of his arrest, Kamenev was found to have a considerable set of notes on the works of Machiavelli and Machiavellian lore. In fact, in 1934, Kamenev was the head of the, quote, academia, unquote, publishing house in the Soviet Union, to which he had been assigned when he was removed as punishment for his disruptive and oppositionist activities. While in that post, he published Machiavelli's, quote, The Prince, unquote, and wrote an introduction to it. He quoted Machiavelli as saying, quote, there are two ways of contending for political power, by law and by force. Because many times the first is insufficient, recourse must be had to the second, unquote. This, Kamenev commented, shows Machiavelli to be a master of political aphorism and a brilliant dialectician, end quote. Kamenev further enlarges on this, calling Machiavelli, quote, a dialectarian who from his observations had formed the firm opinion that all conceptions of the criteria of good and evil, of the permissible and impermissible, of the lawful and criminal, were relative. If this were only a subconscious justification of his own criminal activities, at that time the following almost constituted his program. For he wrote, quote, Machiavelli made his treatise into an astoundingly sharp and expressive catalog of the rules by which the ruler of his time was to be guided in order to win power, to hold it, and victoriously to withstand any attacks upon it, end quote. Okay. Hey. Yeah, really briefly, because a lot of people are getting onto this and they're like, well, they're like what? And I just want to explain something, because this is something which is very interesting. It's been lost in time in American historiography, is that and I want everybody to know this, and maybe we can send out the PDF of this book and then perhaps the website I'm about to say. But during the time of Weimar Germany, the Soviet Union was actually rearming Germany against the international, against the U.S. and France and Britain. And in exchange, Germany, remember, this is not Nazis. These are just Germans. The Germans helped build special schools in the Soviet Union. There was an infantry school. There was a chemical weapons school. There was an airplanes school and a tank school. And these were this is like back in the 20s, remember, back when they are still using carts pulled by horses, like in the United States. But they had these secret research and weapons facilities in the Soviet Union. And the very same officers in the Wehrmacht in World War II were at that time studying in the Soviet Union. So in World War II, the German and the Soviet officers who fought each other were actually classmates in the Soviet Union. So that's why when when the Hitler took power in 33, in the League of Nations, the Soviet Union immediately came and was saying to the world, like we need to we need to take on uh, Germany here. But as we know, the UK and France they had a, a policy I forget the name of it where they would just let Hitler do whatever he wanted when he would move eastward. But I, I just want to tell people so you actually understand these people who are being talked about in these trials 
this is the reason why they were in those trials is because at the same time, the Soviet Union thought that they were secretly building up Germany. Because remember, Berlin in the 20s was the most red city outside of Moscow. There was a huge communist party there. So the Soviet Union thought that they were winning. But what really happened was the Germans rearmed and they actually had an incredible spy network inside the Soviet Union. That's why they thought they could defeat the Soviet Union, but obviously they were mistaken. In other words, in one sentence, I'm going to clarify what the comrade said. There was a history of friendship between individual people in the Soviet government and people in the German government, the Weimar German government. So their friendships go back to that period. So for people to say as they did, oh, how can these people be traitors? They're Soviet heroes. Well, there's a history that people never went back to. Yes. So there is this common thing you hear from Trotskyists about the Moscow trials that in the purges that all these charges brought up against Zinoviev, Trotsky, Fedov, even the right wing in the military like Kupachevsky were fabricated. But obviously we know that to be false because of the evidence that was provided. We see it as true. But Trotskyists say, well, this is just Stalinist fabrication, blah, blah, blah. Well, there's another source for this, which is Trotsky's own letters, which were opened in Trotsky Harvard archives in the 1980s. And a French Trotskyist historian, Pierre Bure, was allowed to go in and publish these letters between Trotsky and his son Setov, who still lived in the Soviet Union at the time. It was collaborating with Nazi Germany, with Tukhachevsky, who was trying to do a military, right-wing military coup, and as well as Zinoviev and, and Domenev and the conspiracy around the death of Kirov. Pierre Bure, Bure spelled B-R-O-U-E. This is regarding the reference to notes on Machiavellian thought. Does that imply that Machiavelli was actually a Marxist-Leninist? No. My opinion of that is it implies that the author was basically going outside of Marxism and Marxist philosophy and was going to Machiavelli. That's what I got from this. Could, the, could I make a comment on that, Comrade? Yes. Go ahead, go ahead Comrade. So another thing to point out is that Machiavelli is essentially the author of, it, like, there's a big Machiavelli quote, which is, the ends justify the means. So it's to give you a perspective that Kamenev, right off the bat, his political philosophy and one of the main philosophers that he admired is the guy who basically says, achieve power at all means, no matter the cost. And obviously that isn't very socialist, because <laughs> at that point you're just a power monger. You're like an opportunist, you know? But, which is what he later proves to be. It's just foreshadowing for the early parts, but anyway. I guess my question is along the same lines. First, what I understood is that, first, I guess it's a little tangent, but there's debate in the philosophical community if Ma Machiavelli wrote his actual opinion in the Prince and related works or was just, they might have been satirical. But my bigger question at large is even odd, like, in my personal experience, even exposing myself to material that I, on the whole, don't agree with the majority of it, I do sometimes learn lessons that are applicable to other areas. I mean, I might not agree with all of their work, but I do learn something. On, and I was just wondering what the Soviet body's attitude is towards that. Like, I mean, I guess through like even fascist works, you learn how to take, you learn about your enemy, you learn how to take them down in a sense. Okay, let me just ask anybody in this phone call. If you haven't read The Prince, for whatever reason, you need to do that. It's about time in your life that you read this important work because it is something that 
political leaders have taken from that period to the present. They're using it right now in the election that's going on between Trump and Biden. Machiavellian's works are being used. One sentence, it's a big chessboard, and the person who's moving the chess is actually moving people's lives and doing it according to his or her personal direction to benefit themselves. That's the essence of the chessboard Machiavellian viewpoint of how things are done in history. I think my knowledge about those individuals is very limited. I know of the trial and I know of all the steps taken by the Communist Party of the Soviet Union to discipline them. But trying to understand their crisis in the context of Marxist-Leninist theory, I think those guys probably joined the party for ulterior reasons using Marxist-Leninist theory. But in terms of commitment, to Marxist-Leninist theory, if Kamenev could quote Machiavelli as a great literature or as a great leader, I think he was a degenerate and a useless person who may have joined the party for uh, personal reasons, for ulterior reasons, but I cannot really understand, uh, I cannot really think that he, he had nothing to do with Marxism-Leninism. Nothing, okay. zero, zero. I wanted to also, I wanted to, I guess, ask a question. It's, I think Kamenev, when people said that they were working with the fascists, I think during the Moscow trials, the NKVD at that time, or the OGPU, I don't remember which was exist in existence, but I think the reason they accused them of being fascist collaborators is because if you look at Machiavelli, a lot of fascist thinkers like Antonio Negri and Julius Evola used their anti-democratic principles in fascism based on Machiavelli. They believed that the common people could never achieve a functional society and that fascism is like a perpetual fear of allowing the, the people to react. And that's why communism and socialism, Marxism-Leninism is such an enemy to fascism. Because communism and socialism, Marxism-Leninism is truly allows people to naturally act in their best ability. And I think that's why they were considered fascist collaborators and not just outright imperialist agents. Because a lot of them, even thinking that Machiavelli is a great dialectician, is like it, it kind of shows where you, what, how you're playing your cards, I, I would say. Like you show your hand. Uh, I want to read the paragraph in the book, one, four, three sentences. Uh, what you just said, the will of the people, social forces, or class relations seem to play little part in Kamenov's thinking, in the winning of power. He had to do that with a shallow Machiavellian justification of criminal activities. That's right from the pamphlet. So I think you're correct, comrade. So it's not just what you said about Kamenev that makes him a fascist collaborator. There's also later parts in the books that I won't get into too extensively where he physically tries to collaborate with Nazi agents and he brags about having met this Nazi big shot or that Nazi big shot in the trial. But anyway, let's proceed with the book. Go ahead. Now we're going to talk about Zinoviev. Zinoviev, who was associated with Kamenev in his activities, was for some years head of the Communist International. Lenin had once published a book under their joint authorship, 
the killing of Kirov, the association of Zinoviev and Kamenev with such a despicable act as murder, should have awakened us to the death of the forces which were manipulating those events. But absorbed as we were with the problems of our own country, we Americans, and so far as I could tell, the delegates of the other countries, took the December assassination and the January trial much too casually. As time went by and more and more of these ex-leaders of the Russian Communist Party and the Communist International were shown to be involved, none of us who were close to the scene failed to realize that this was not some aberration of individuals, but that we were merely at the heart of a great world drama. Of those who were tried later, I knew fairly intimately Shatskin, Laminades, Bukharin, Radic, and Fritz David. Some I found to have been very attractive persons, particularly Bukharin, an altogether charming and cultured person. Chatskin, who had been head of the Young Communist International for some years, was a much younger man and, though exceptionally gifted in many ways, beloved to that category of young communists, Laminates, Doriet, Mwenzenberg, whose heroism during the First World War made them the darlings of the world communist movement and utterly spoiled them. Erratic, I always found to be a more disagreeable person. He was forever surrounded by a group of admirers who enormously enjoyed his quips and cleverness. Yet, while his conversation was full of that glittering, brilliant phraseology which was characteristic of Trotsky, yet he never probed in a serious scientific way below the surface. The clever, glittering phrase was more important to him than the unpolished, sober kernel of truth. He was not an attractive person in appearance. He had thick, lensed glasses and wore his beard from temple to temple and under his chin. The chin itself and the rest of his face was clean-shaven. His tongue was sharp as a knife, and he was always performing before whatever audience he could muster. <clears throat> and in his gyrations... He was not particular whom he cut up. Once, during one of these performances, before a group of six or eight, he was asked by one whether his transfer from the high post of being an assistant to the foreign office to his new post as head of the Chinese Eastern University didn't make him lose prestige with his students so that he would find it difficult to perform his new duties. Quote, The chinks think I was promoted from assistant to president. End quote. The group laughed at this alleged wisdom, and he strutted like the lone rooster in a hen yard. But I must confess, I found the joke repulsive. It was typical of him. One of the others who went to trial was Fritz David. David served at the same time that I was a member of the editorial board of the, quote, Communist International, unquote, the official magazine published in some five languages by the Comintern. I found him a quarrelsome, self-assertive, self-opinionated, and altogether disagreeable person. The chairman of the, of the board during my tenure was Clement Gottwald, the leader of the Czechoslovak Communist Party. Gottwald was a very friendly and generous man with whom it was very difficult to quarrel even when some political disagreement arose. For Gottwald's democratic attitude to everyone, was such that the political disagreements could be freely expressed, and he, unlike some petty, mean individual, 
never tried to crush those who disagreed with him, but rather sought common ground as a basis for unity. David conducted himself disrespectfully towards Gottwald, and to all our annoyance, was forever trying to deepen differences, and in the time-honored phrase of the factionalists, was always, quote, sharpening, unquote, the point of view expressed and proclaimed that he must, quote, show where comrade so-and-so's viewpoint led to, end quote. What anyone said was insufficient for him on the face of it. He was forever disrupting the meetings of the editorial board with disruptions as to, quote, what lies underneath, unquote, quote, what is implied, unquote, and, quote, what are the overtones, unquote, of what one said. He was an excellent recruit for Trotskyite opposition. Some might attribute his personal qualities to his oppositionist affiliations. There is no doubt some connection, uh, but me, I think. Eight forty. Thank, you, Thank comrade. you, comrade. But I think the reverse is also true that he became an oppositionist because of his makeup. If ever I needed proof, the following incident illustrates it. You know, I was just reading Gothwell. I believe Gothwell's way of dealing with comrades is the way we should be doing it here. I just want to know if I was following along right and reading this right. It seems like Fritz David was the one who was kind of the most, seems like he had the, the least amount of characteristics about him, almost, like the other people they described earlier were kind of in, more inflammatory. They were still obviously bad meaning, but it seems like Fritz David was like the most technically sinister, like so who had bad motivations. Am I reading that right? Or is it like everyone was? Well, we didn't, finish, we didn't finish David yet. So after we read David, then your question would be valid, but we need to read what the author said about David. We haven't read that yet. Who did this guy, like, bragged about speaking to Nazi officials to? Was it just, like, a close person, or did he brag to, like, other officials about him being, like, buddy-buddy with Nazis? He, he, he bragged in the court. It, we'll get there in the book eventually, or in the pamphlet, but he, he bragged in front of the court about having met with, with so-and-so big Nazi big shot, and how he was scheduled to meet with some random Nazi official and that he said that that official wasn't high enough and that Hitler personally sent someone else and that he was a high-ranking person and he was bragging about that while sipping on lemonade at the trial. The question I really have is Darcy's purpose in this memoir. I get the impression that there's a lot of controversy as to who was really guilty, who was really innocent, you know, what was true, what wasn't. The fact was that in the middle of the Depression, it appears Stalin really had to put a cap on the, in quotes, Trotskyites or infiltrated Nazis. I get that. But what was Darcy's perspective? I, what is he saying pro or con? And what happened? Darcy was invited uh, just in the front of the uh, of the book. Actually, I want to read this out. Uh, I did. It a we read it before you came. We read it right. before you he, came. He, he was Excuse the part where he's on the National Committee of the American Communist Party. We read all that. And that he was a delegate to the Communist International in Moscow. Correct. All right. So among those things, Darcy's position is, from at least how I take it, it's a pro-Stalin position. That's the perspective I get off of it. But generally, I think it's just more a pro-communist position because generally these people, if you read left-wing communism and an infantile disorder, it really puts into perspective how the actions and motives and things that these people do, how they're wrong, 
there's some things that are obviously wrong, but then like you get deeper perspective into the how the behavior of these people were wrong. And Darcy just tries to flesh out the person while trying to address the motion of that person in regards to what happened in the trials. That's about it. Did that answer your question? Yes. Thank you very much. Let me go the following incident part. illustrates it. David had once been a member of the German Communist Party. At the time of the 7th Congress of the Comintern, he was not a delegate to the Congress, being only, quote, a political worker, unquote, in the Comintern. He was not entitled to an admission ticket to the Hall of Columns in the House of the Trade Unions, where the Congress took place. He went to William Keck, the fine old man who headed the German Communist delegation, and with much pleading convinced him to intercede on his behalf to get him a ticket of admission. His eagerness to enter that convention, it later turned out, was not merely his interest in the common turn. It was due to the fact that he had been commissioned by the Trotskyites to assassinate Stalin when Stalin appeared on the rostrum. He related subsequently how he entered the hall with a gun in his pocket and moved as far up the hall as he could, and at the last moment concluded that he, quote, could not get close enough for his aim to be effective, end quote. More than likely, the overwhelming ovation that Stalin was given on his appearance on the platform took the heart out of this assassin. Most of those Trotskyite, quote, heroes, unquote, were willing to plan assassinations for others to risk their skin in doing. But that David was willing to involve the old unblemished veteran, Piek, in such a dirty business illustrates the utter unscrupulousness and lack of character of those people. But how did such seemingly decent people as Bukharin and Chatskin get mixed up with, with such stinkers as Radek, David, and of course even more contemptible people whom I did not know personally? When I arrived in July of 1935, I found Moscow to be considerably different than when I left in 1926. This was not the easygoing city it appeared to be on my first visit. Moscow was in a big hurry in 1935. Most American cities are built in long straight or almost straight streets, running in oblong or square blocks. Most European cities consist of a series of squares or circles which are as the hub of a wheel, the spokes being the streets leading towards the hub. Moscow was built that way. Before the revolution, however, at every hub where one would expect a nice open space, there were at least one, often two or three churches crowding the intersection and towering above all other buildings, so that all streets were reduced to a narrow alleys and traffic was hazardous and in a constant tangle. By 1935, these obstacles to a clean city had been removed. The city's cobblestone had, in most places, been replaced by modern paving. Streets were widened. Some new structures, a splendid hotel, several fine office buildings, and a remarkably beautiful subway were built. Yet it was not those outward things that struck one most forcibly. It was the people. Everyone was hard at work, trying to beat individual production, quote, norms, unquote, and factory production quotas. The heroes of industries and farm production were the heroes of the day. Their photos, decorations, and awards graced the front pages of the biggest newspapers. There was not a beggar or a prostitute anywhere. 
they had all been transformed into useful production workers. The newspapers carried these scores on daily production achievements for key enterprises, just as our papers carry baseball and football scores, although they had those too. Once, for the better part of a week, I sat in a convention of beet farm workers. About 1,000 participated. Also Stalin, Molotov, Voroshilov, Zadnov, Kaganovich, and others. It was quite a sight to watch Stalin and farmers discuss the best way to pick beets, to plant them, to handle them, and to see some peasant girl point out to Stalin the error of this or that suggestion he made or to thank him for some help he gave them, and to insist that some rest home space be allotted them, or to stand up and cheer when final agreement was reached in production quotas. I sat in similar conventions of the subway diggers, tractor workers, watched locksmith Olympiads and others. It was an inspiring demonstration of democracy in practice. The country was covered with slogans along the same line, Quote, the ability of people decides everything, end quote. Quote, improve your qualifications, end quote. Quote, beat the quota, end quote. Applicants for the Communist Party membership were rejected if they could not show that they acquired new skills in production in the two years preceding. Unskilled worker to skilled and skilled worker to foreman, foreman to engineer, etc., Government trade unions, cooperatives, political organizations, youth organizations were all running extra school classes for acquiring skills. The maid who served our room at the hotel, 18 years of age, had been an illiterate peasant two years before when she arrived in Moscow. She was already studying her high school subjects when we came. Her hours of work as a domestic ended at 4 p.m. She rushed off to her trade union classes and returned at 7 p.m. Then she sat in the corner of the community kitchen until after midnight doing her homework and studying. She was up at 6.30 for work. Before we left, she was doing problems in trigonometry. As part of the course, she was then taking in aerodynamics. The country was definitely going somewhere and it was in a big hurry to get there. This had been going on since 1929. The last thing I took with me out of Moscow when I left at the end of 1928 was the issues of Izviestia, in which Bukharin published his, quote, notes of an economist, end quote, wherein he set forth the right-wing thesis against the proposed first five-year plan. In substance, he asserted that the plan, which was to undertake an ambitious program for the construction of heavy industry to the disadvantage of the supply of consumer goods, was doomed to failure because it was too much for a backward country. The first five-year plan was completed. The audit had not been announced, nor the dividends declared, but it was evident to the naked eye that it was pretty close to success. The cost to the people had been considerable. Obstacles thought insurmountable had to be overcome. Metal was needed for construction, but the supply was so pitifully inadequate, they sent geologists to locate new sources. Materials and personnel for now, for now construction projects had to be transported across vast spaces, and the transport system was congested and inadequate. Some of the new industrial giants were to be erected in what had been wildernesses, where even elementary housing, food, and clothing was lacking. The shortage of any kind of skill was the worst problem. Slovenly methods of work and habits of life 
were still widespread hangover from the Tsarist regime. The working class had grown from some 12 million to 29 million in five years. To accomplish this epic changing transformation, recruiting for industry had to be centered on a peasantry of 50 generations of farming background who did not take kindly to the skills demanded in precision work. During this period, the muscles and nerves of the people of the Soviet Union were stretched like a taut wire. The Bolsheviks lived only for their construction projects. They taught, spoke, argued, and dreamed construction figures. Mobilized human will, persistence, purpose, and considerable sacrifice in the face of enormous hardship was all directed towards the achievement of that first five-year plan. During that period, they slept badly, ate badly. Many of their best people were worn out and lost their lives in that struggle. Those were the years of the most heroic and truly colossal industrial achievements the world has ever known. They undertook in five years what we in the United States with more favorably situated natural resources did in 50. This is fascinating. I must confess I never read this pamphlet to this extent. And you were correct, Comrade Fernando. You said it was, was quite educating us on what life was like at that period of time during the common turn in the Soviet Union. This was excellent. I really enjoyed the subject. I liked what we were reading. No one else in the country, in our country, is studying this material. That's why we exist. I thought it was a good class. I think this is a very important subject. and It gets, really, this pamphlet, what I found most interesting is how it really gets deep into what type of people and the perceptions of these types of people that were on trial during that time. I think you can find a lot of parallels between the chauvinism of Radek, for example, and Trotskyist, the ultra-left circles today. So I think it's an interesting parallel. Thank you. Thank you. I had a, a question earlier regarding just just really cement the thing about uh, Machiavelli. It is, did you recommend reading The Prince to basically know your enemy? And also yeah, I think it's important to read it, and you'll see people in the left who fit that description. I know people in the leadership of the old party personally, and they fit this description accurately. So, yes, I would recommend that. One of the people we did not bring up tonight was someone named Bela Khan. He was with the leader of the Hungarian Socialist Republic in 1919 when it existed for about 120 days, and he was one of the people who was accused of Trotskyism and executed in 1938. And he was actually rehabilitated in 1956 by Khrushchev as a part of de-Stalinization. And I didn't know if this was just sort of a typical example of uh, what the problem was or if there were excesses in the trials, what were there, if any, specifically? I'd like to speak on that. I think in every situation where the country is surrounded, remember, they were surrounded by all kinds of, if you get the movie by the, based on the American ambassador, Davies, get his movie Mission to Moscow, the DVD of that, you'll see what we're talking about. They were surrounded by all kinds of traitors. It's easy in that situation, in my opinion, to have mistakes. Yes, it's my own view. So I don't know enough about about him, but from what I do know, so I, I would suggest that you look more into him yourself rather than just take my word for it. But what I do know about Khrushchev is that he was a very much a military man throughout his career, and I don't think he was as preoccupied with I was sticking to the line of Marxism-Leninism as he was more so preoccupied with securing his own power base. 
And I think that was more so a political, one might say Machiavellian move to secure his political power base more so than it was that he was absolving him or that the trials went too far. At least that's my initial feelings on it. My question is related again to the Machiavellian topic. I was just wondering how a socialist state handles literature and other means of agitprop that could potentially affect many people. It could radicalize them in a negative way, such as fascism or neoliberalism, but also has the opportunity to provide, I suppose, provide people with a sound understanding of Marxist Leninism with knowledge pertaining to how best to defeat your enemy or how to... Because, like, oftentimes in, like, war school or whatever, they teach you that you have to think like your enemy, and those, those books could potentially harm many people or radicalize them in the wrong way. But there's definitely, I feel, as though there's information in those books that could provide people with information as to how to defeat them. I think tonight's class gives us a great example of how life is in constant dialectical motion, where it's a possible to watch Marxist theoreticians such as Zinoviev, Kamenev, Bukharin, etc., flip into a position that opposes the Marxist movement, and you can see the transformation of a mostly illiterate society into an industrial powerhouse. So it's a great lesson on dialectics. So I think this is an important class to, because these trials were used to attack both the Soviet Union in general and, and Stalin. And so I think it's, it's very important to understand them. And I would just like to repeat what I said about the mission to Moscow this is a, there's a book by the U.S. ambassador to Moscow in the 1940s, and he, in 1930s and 40s, and he felt that most of the trials were legitimate attempts to uh, attack, uh, to defend uh, the country against subversion and treachery. And there was a movie, right, the same thing. I just wanted to focus on that last bit where he talks about the improvement of the USSR. We hear a lot in capitalist society about, like, the Japan Meiji Restoration, it goes from feudalism to industrialization in record times. And now we see a very concrete evidence of how socialism actually does even better than what we always hear in capitalism in improving people's lives in equal ways. And so just something I thought we should keep in mind when learning about this stuff, that capitalism doesn't like to talk about this. And this is why the educationals are really important for us. Besides this pamphlet and the book and movie, Mission to Moscow, uh, are there any other detailed accounts of those trials, of people who actually were in those trials, or witnessing them, that we should look into? Well, I suggest you get the movie Reds. It was a bourgeois version, but it shows Zenobia. And what right, kind of a I have actually already seen that one. Okay, this is so Rock Zenobia is in that, along with John Reed. Um, there's a book by a worker named James Scott called Behind the Urals. An American worker in Russia, City of Steel, John Scott, and he. Did you uh, say that name again? Behind the Urals. Behind the Urals, like the Ural Mountains. U R A L S. He observed some of the industrial sabotage that Zinoviev and Kamenev's group were engaged in, um, and he describes it in that book. Could I make a comment on that? Yes. So it's really interesting that you note that because later on in the memoirs, and I also won't go too deep into it. 
but it gives some example of the industrial sabotage that they committed. And in one of them, well, the second probably most horrific one, there was a bunch of miners who essentially they rigged an explosion at the facility where they worked. And a lot of them were like crippled and they didn't have arms or legs and stuff. And they had to like be on crutches and things. And they actually came to the trial and they wouldn't be let inside because they were demanding to be let inside so they could look the people who did that to them in the face. But we, Soviet trials emphasized orderly like conduct and no. So in order to keep order, they sort of denied them from entering, but they picketed outside for the entirety of the trial. So anyway. Yeah, I briefly just want to go over two books that are great on this subject. Both are by Grover Furr. He has a book called Moscow Trials as Evidence. That's one of the best English language books you can read on this. And he has a new book called New Evidence of Trotsky's Conspiracies. And he does go through new evidence that has been released in the last two years that is on this subject. So definitely check those out. Yes, Grover is excellent on this stuff, Grover Fro. Uh, we met him, U.S. friends of the Soviet people. He's been at many meetings. I think I have a unique information for you on Moscow trials. I think the United States was represented by a delegation led by John Dewey. I think he, he has a history of an educator in American uh, history. So I think he reported that the trial was fair and justifiable. That was the report he gave to the United States government. John Dewey. John again, Dewey. Spell it again. John Dewey. Dewey. D-E-W-E-Y. Oh, yeah. Yeah, D-E-W-E-Y. Right. Yeah, Dewey. American Education on Pragmatism. Yeah. Right. Responsible for the Dewey Decimal System in the library, in case anybody wants to know. That's who he was. Wow. Thank you. He was in a committee organized by Trotsky's son, by the way. And, oh. Uh, yeah, did you know that? And he went over to the other side. That's interesting. He went as a Trotsky person, and then after going to the trials, he went to the other side, to the anti-Trotsky. Wow, amazing. So I just wanted to say that this book on the, on the Moscow trials is very well publicized and talked about in Mexico. It's a little size there. Thank you. Thank you so much, and uh, I want to thank everybody for getting on tonight, thank and you. thank you all. Uh,